and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. We have a very special show for you today. We're joined by Lee Berman. Lee is former White House Social Secretary to President George W. Bush, and she's the co-author of a wonderful and I think much needed new book entitled Treating People Well. Lee is an incredible hostess, an accomplished event planner, an amazing mom, and also a wonderful, wonderful friend. She's also the creator of a terrific blog and website called America's Table. Lee, thank you so much for joining us on She Said, She Said. Oh, well, I'm so happy to be here, Laura. You and I go back a long ways, and this is just a treat. It really is a treat. And I must say, we are on location in Lee's beautiful living room in Northwest Washington. So she is hosting us yet again this morning. We're so happy to be here in your beautiful home. Well, thank you. Uh, This house is a very historic house. I don't know if I've talked with you about this before. It was built in 1754 in Danvers, Massachusetts. It was the headquarters of the head of the British Army during the Revolutionary War for part of the campaign. And then it was dismantled and moved here to Washington in the 1930s. And we moved in last year, and we've been renovating ever since with no end in sight. It's amazing. It (laughs) really is amazing. Thank you for having us. So we have much to discuss today with your amazing book. Let's start with that. A couple things I thought were particularly interesting. A, that you wrote the book with a member of the opposite party. You had lots of social secretaries to pick from, and you picked someone from the Obama administration. And two, this focus on treating people well and civility. How did this, how did this come about? Why this approach? Well, Jeremy and I were friends from the time he became social secretary because there is a very supportive group of former White House social secretaries going back to the Johnson administration who get together regularly and offer themselves as a resource to the sitting uh, social secretary. And he was coming in as the new social secretary, and we became friends and stayed friends. And a mutual friend, Roxanne Roberts from the Washington Post, said, you two should write a book together. You know, you have a lot in common. And we started to talk about it and thinking we would write an entertaining book but really came around to realizing that despite the fact that we worked for very different administrations, we had had such similar experiences. And we found that the focus of a social secretary, which is to make everyone's visit to the White House very happy and exceptional and memorable, caused us to focus how we dealt with people very differently every day. Our interest was in making every interaction as positive as possible because we realized that we didn't want to do anything that would embarrass the president and first lady, and we didn't ever want to be the subject of a negative news story. And that is a very focusing piece of information, and it changed how we dealt with people. And we realized that the tricks and devices that we learned uh, doing that would be useful to anybody in any walk of life. And so that's how we came together to write about that particular subject. So interesting. Your timing could not be better because there is so much focus on civility and, frankly, rudeness. I read an interesting article just the other day uh, that was produced by McKinsey. They've done some data research on the bottom line, basically, impact that rudeness in the workplace creates. People leave. They're unhappy. They don't collaborate. 
customers leave as a result of this. So there's actually a dollars and cents component to this, which makes perfect sense when you think about it. But I mean, this was this is sort of an interesting moment in time to have this conversation. Where do you think all this rudeness comes from or people not being, you know, not being as considerate as perhaps they have been? Well, bad behavior is contagious. Studies have proven that. And I think you see an element of social media making the norm of behavior be a little more coarse. You see the public arena and what's happening in politics, making people behave in a way that was never considered acceptable before, and yet we see it every day now. And it sort of gives people license to behave less well than they do. But you're right, there is a very costly economic factor to all of this. Most people leave jobs because they don't like the environment or they don't like their bosses. And what it costs to find another person and retrain them is quite high. And I think if more people in human resources understood that, they would pay more attention to how people interact within their offices. Because um, I think we've all had experiences where we're dealing with someone who makes us dread going to work every day. That's no way to live. And in unless you really have no recourse, most people will leave in that situation. Sure, sure. I'm curious, are businesses and companies reaching out to you and Jeremy to come and talk about some of the tips that you have in the book? Yes, we're just beginning to hear from people in the hospitality industry for obvious reasons, you know, hotels and and, um, restaurants to some extent who want to understand what they need to do to make their customers come back again and again. And often what they they don't realize is that the best form of customer service is to be a very good listener because you're asking people what they want and then you're able to give it to them and that does build loyalty and it uh, causes people to come back again and again and feel like they have sort of a stake and they've developed a relationship, whether it's a hotel or a restaurant. That's fantastic. What about the response overall? Has anything surprised you about how people are receiving the book? We've had wonderful response. Um, I don't know what I expected, but it's been wholly positive, and I, we're very grateful. I, I think that there's been voice to us very much a need for this kind of thing and sort of a recalibration of how people treat each other. And it doesn't have to be just at work. It's, you know, someone who doesn't close a door in your face or making eye contact with the cashier at the local grocery store. And these small things that don't seem like anything very important, but in the balance of your day, if more of those interactions are negative than positive, you're going to have a bad day. You're not going to be happy with yourself. And on the plus side of things, when we make efforts to be kind to others, it makes us feel good about ourselves. It makes us feel a little more self-confident. And um, that is all to the good. It reduces stress. Sure. And, and it, I think it goes without saying, setting this example for your children, right? So that oh, they yes. see you uh, engaged in those positive behaviors and they mimic those behaviors. Or, or the inverse would be true as well, right? Right. I mean, children learn how to behave by watching their parents. And um, I... Re- That reminds me of a story when my girls were young and we were taking down a tree at the back of our garden that was dead. And we were standing at a fair distance watching the tree being taken down. And one of the neighbors who lived behind us, whom I had never met, came charging out of the house and she'd clearly been drinking. And she just started screaming at me about, you know, this is going to fall on my house and I'm going to sue you for all you're worth. One of my favorite things. (laughs) 
And I, my girls were both standing there. There were maybe seven and three. And I just stepped forward and I put my hand out and I said, I don't think we've met yet. I'm your neighbor. I'm Lee Berman and we're taking this tree down and we have this tree company and they've assured me that it will not fall on your house. The woman was aghast. And when you refuse to answer anger with anger, it really takes the air out of the room. You know, it, it takes the, the air out of the balloon, I should say. And people have to take a step back and respond and be a little bit more polite. And so that's one of the more useful things I learned in the White House is to recalibrate your reactions and not to give people the emotion they're giving to you. What tips do you have for people? I mean, you can you can so easily fall into this trap of just reacting, right? We've all done it, unfortunately. It's embarrassing. Hopefully we always apologize if we do something or say something that we shouldn't. But what's your... What's your tip for stopping <laughs> before you before you engage in that behavior? Say that thing that you really shouldn't say. Right. Well, there are two parts to this. First, um, to go back to what I was saying about my daughters, that experience was something that was just another day to me. But ten or fifteen years later, they mm-hmm. said to me, "You know, I remember this time that this happened with the neighbor and the tree and." It was amazing the way you reacted, and it helped me understand that that's how you disagree with someone in a way that you end up getting what you want. And so it was a lesson I didn't know I was teaching them at the time, but it does show you that you might think you're doing nothing much with your kids, and they're absorbing all of the time. Um, And I found that being a mom was really good preparation for working at the White House, because you find yourself verbalizing things you think you would never have to say to another person. Another story quickly, when my daughter was very young and she was learning to be potty trained, she came out of the bathroom with a pair of wet underpants and said, I had an accident and started to hand me the underpants and then stopped and sneezed and blew her nose in her wet underpants. (laughs) And I, I, I heard myself saying, you know, we never blow our nose in our wet underpants. Then you flash forward to the White House and people are behaving oddly in some cases and you hear yourself saying things like, I'm sorry, sir, I'm sure the president would love to see your high-powered rifle, but you may not bring it on the grounds and I'm pretty sure you can't bring it into the District of Columbia either. Or, you know, I'm so sorry, but the First Lady's bathroom is not on the tour. You won't be seeing that today. Um, And so there is this constant series of deflections and diffusing of the way people are asking for something that maybe they don't understand they shouldn't be asking. And sometimes they know and they're just going to push the envelope and see what they can do. And we found, Jeremy and I, the best thing was to be calm and pleasant and just simply not react and tell them what we could do for them. And they would have to be satisfied with that. So let's transition and talk a bit more about the role of the White House social secretary. Um, You've touched on some of the more unusual elements of the job, which my guess is it just goes with the territory. You never quite know what you're going to be facing in a given day. But for those listening who may not know, what's involved in the role? Uh, The White House social secretary is responsible for every event that takes place in the White House, with the exception of the Oval Office and the press room. And so it's hundreds of events a year. I think we worked it out to about slightly over 400 a year. So that's multiple events in a day. And it's everything from the state dinners, which is what people tend to think we do, uh, to um, 
rose garden ceremonies and um, diplomatic delegations coming for luncheons and dinners and receptions for supporters and balls and picnics and private entertaining in the family residence. So it's a very high volume event planning operation with a very small staff. What surprised you the most? I mean, notwithstanding some of the anecdotes that you, <laughs> you've just mentioned, was there, you know, was there something that really surprised you about the role? I had come from working on the vice presidential side of the White House, and I had been the social secretary there and then also Lynn Cheney's chief of staff, and I was surprised at how much more visible it was to be the social secretary. You know, I'd never been in the newspaper before, and what I did was not something anybody ever cared about, and I was pretty happy about that. And then I realized that I was under so much more scrutiny there, which added a lot of pressure on the other hand, you have such good resources. You have chefs and butlers and ushers and calligraphers and florists, and they're all part of the White House residence. They don't come and go with presidents. They usually spend their whole careers there in the White House, and they have a great sense of discretion and loyalty, and they always know that whatever's happening and however crazy something might get, they make it work. And so that was a tremendous backstop for me. And I assume your your back your background in event planning too, had and motherhood had you hardwired to think like a risk manager to think about you know two steps ahead what could possibly go wrong Absolutely. sort of thing. I always think about motherhood in that context. You mentioned that earlier. I think motherhood made me a much better risk manager in all of my jobs than before I was before I had kids because you're always operating with multiple multiple plans, right? Contingencies. Exactly. <laughs> and it is one series of risk management jobs after another in the White House because you can only control so much. And I used to spend a lot of time visualizing how an event would go and thinking about all the things that could potentially go wrong and how I would manage those. And the only times that we ever had problems were when something came up that nobody had visualized and so we weren't prepared for it. For example, in the, the China official luncheon when there was a heckler who came in on a press pass and the Secret Service had never foreseen such an uh, obstacle. Wow. And it took them a long time to get them off the grounds and that had ramifications for the whole rest of the day, not just in terms of the luncheon and social events, but I'm sure in terms of how the negotiations went that day. Sure. So with event planning and obviously the job, most White House jobs are very demanding, but I would think the job of the White House social secretary in particular because of the number of events and parties and especially evening events that you're planning you mentioned your two beautiful daughters who are now grown, but they were quite young at right. the point in which you held both your job in the vice president's residence and, and then at the White House. How did you balance all of that so that you were able to spend time with them? This is the age-old question. How do you balance work and life? And I think any tips that you have for how you were able to make that work are always helpful for people to, to know. I have to say I owe it all to my husband because he really raised the girls for the years that I was there. He took it over completely, and also he made the money in our family because uh, you, nobody gets rich working on a government salary. Um, and so we had, without ever verbalizing it, sort of an unspoken agreement over the source, over the many years that we were married, that sometimes he would go into government, and he did, and then I took care of everything, and then it turned out 
to be my turn unexpectedly. And it's just been like a handoff back and forth between us. And we're not at all competitive with each other because we do such very different things. And honestly, I could never have done it without him. Yeah, you guys are an amazing partnership. Lee has been married to her wonderful husband, Wayne Berman, for 35 years, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you're, you, are, you are the testament to a great partnership, <laughs> which is wonderful. There are so many amazing stories in the book, and I especially like, I downloaded the audio version of the book. And when you do that, you hear Lee and her co-author, Jeremy, actually telling many of these stories in their own words. And it ma- it makes the stories very personal. Uh, and it's really a terrific, terrific touch. But one of my favorites is the story that you tell about a certain ball gown and a very heavy <laughs> White House door. Can you tell us that story? Uh, it was the Kennedy Center Honors, the first reception that I'd done. And I was very excited because one of the honorees was Robert Redford, who had been kind of a girlhood crush of mine. And I was looking forward to meeting him. And I was wearing a black velvet strapless gown with a very full skirt. And just as the event was beginning and the White House was filling up with guests, I decided to take a back entrance out of the White House and back inside so that I could avoid the crowds. And um, I went out a door that goes basically to a garage near the kitchen. And the door closed on my skirt and pulled my dress down to my waist. And I was stuck there in the door and the door was stuck closed. And thank goodness there was no one around to see this, but I couldn't get the door open and I couldn't get the dress pulled up and out. And so I finally just started flinging myself against the door until I could get it open. And I managed to finally get it open and sort of rearrange myself, got reorganized, raced outside, back in through the kitchen door and up the back steps and patted my hair down and thought I was fully composed and took one step out into the uh, grand floor foyer and found myself face to face with Robert Redford. So all my plans of the conversation I'd hoped to have with him kind of went out the window and I just smiled and said good evening and walked off because there was I just was not prepared to do more than that. It was all the calm I could muster. You talk about in the book, you know, what if there are security cameras? Oh, what yes. if the Secret Service is watching me? <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not a good thing. Right. <laughs> all these things you're like caught in this totally impossible and very embarrassing situation. I was thinking as I read that, something Jeremy never had to contend with. <laughs> no, that's very true. And, you know, so many of the things that happened to us that were crazy and that involve celebrities are the kinds of awkward or difficult moments that all people have. And um, what we really wanted to tell people with the book was that learned behavior is just that. It's learned. We're not innately funny, although a few people are. A few people can be innately charming, but we can all learn those things. And neither Jeremy nor I were gregarious children. We really were both shy and we had to get past a lot of social anxiety to get into the event planning careers that we had. And so I hope it gives people a sense that if they're not happy with their level of social interaction, they feel uncomfortable walking into a room full of strangers, or they feel as though they don't really have a great interaction with their boss, but they don't know how to fix it. Those are all things that we address directly in the book, and they're all eminently fixable. That's a great segue to how you start the book, which is what I wanted to talk to you about next. I love that you start the book with confidence, but that's not, that might not seem entirely obvious to your audience. 
why? Why is confidence so important? I think all other elements of getting along well with people flow from confidence. You have to have a positive attitude when you begin something. You have to be well prepared. Um, My whole focus when I started at the White House and was feeling very overwhelmed in the job was to prepare to the point that I was well over-prepared and I knew everything that was going on. I asked a million questions. I drove everyone around me crazy because if I felt like I understood exactly how things were meant to be, I could make sure they were that way. And so an important aspect of self-confidence is to know what you're doing. Um, And then I found it very important both to give and receive reassurance in terms of building self-confidence. And the First Lady was really wonderful to me in um, letting me know that she had confidence in me and letting other people know that she had confidence in me. Because, you know, as great as the resident staff is, that is a small and entrenched bureaucracy. And they have ways of doing things. And it was very hard to implement any kind of change in that household. And you're talking about almost 100 staffers. So that's a lot of people you're interacting with every day and uh, trying to build relationships and connections. And the social secretary is like the hub of a wheel. And all of those people are out there doing things. And you're constantly checking back in to make sure that these things are happening so that an event goes very smoothly. And so I found that um, making those kinds of efforts with people and being confident and friendly, even though I was asking them to do something for the 12th or the 15th time, I just always did it in a friendly way. And it eventually became easier for them to do it than it was to have to talk about it with me again. And it maybe wasn't their favorite thing, and it certainly wasn't mine. But I saw Mrs. Bush having these really friendly interactions with people all through the White House, and I could see that they liked her and they wanted to please her, and it, that worked. You know, it just And by adopting that, it made my job easier, and it gave me a lot more self-confidence. Mm-hmm. You talk about... Uh you have sort of three elements to confidence that you talk about in the book with practice being one of those, which I thought was really interesting. Yes. And, you know, practice is also, you could consider that a form of consistency, which everyone thinks is a really boring subject, consistency, but would there be Olympians without consistency or great musicians? I mean, no one is really successful without thousands of hours of practice and applied effort that maybe goes on for years. Um, And it is the key and the difference between someone who might be incredibly talented but not have the self-discipline to stick with something uh, and the person who might not be hugely talented, but they have tremendous persistence. And so I, I feel like consistency is a really valuable and useful trait in getting along well with people because people then know what to expect of you. Shifting gears a little bit, you and Jeremy both talk about this notion of imposter syndrome in the book. And this is where, (laughs) you know, really high achieving people at all levels acknowledge that they don't feel deserving of their success or, or feel like you've achieved this level of success largely because of luck as opposed to because it's you should be there. And, and you hear this, you know, people acknowledge this at all levels that you turn around and say, well, how in the heck did I get here? You and Jeremy both talk about this in the book. How do you, what's your advice for dealing with imposter syndrome? We both thought it was some kind of karmic joke because we're both so shy to have become social secretaries. And in fact, Jeremy tells a great story about sitting outside the Oval Office waiting to see the president to ask him about an entertainer for an event. 
percent. And he's sitting next to Susan Rice and John Brennan, and they're both with the furrowed brows, looking very worried. And he knows they're going in and they're talking about very serious policy issues. And he really felt like an imposter in that setting because, you know, he was asking about, you know, John Legend or something. It wasn't at all on the same sphere. And he said so to Susan Rice. And she said, are you kidding? I would give anything to be able to go into the president and ask him some easy question like that. <laughs> uh, so you have to keep it in perspective. And um, you might feel like an imposter, but eventually you start doing the job and you're not anymore. And it's just a matter of familiarity um, that comes with the time of doing it. Yeah. And back to your advice on practice as it relates to confidence overall, I suspect. Yes. So how about fear? I mean, fear can be one of those things that stop us from taking risks, that, 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 that stop us from raising our hand and accepting this amazing opportunity mm-hmm. in the first place. What advice do you have um, for folks who may have trouble facing down their fears? Well, I think it helps to break things down, make them much more incremental. When I went to work for the Cheneys, I had been an at-home mom for 10 years. And I went from literally the carpool line on a Tuesday to being at the White House, learning how to use the White House email system and being briefed by the Secret Service on how to clear people into the vice president's residence. And it was such a huge learning curve. And I felt truly overwhelmed. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and wake up my husband and say, you know, I really can't do this, but tomorrow I'm going to tell the Cheneys I'm going to quit. This is too much for me. And he'd say, yeah, okay, fine. And then the next morning I'd get up and I'd say, "I, I, I can't bring myself to do that. I'm going to give it one more day. And I did that. And it took three or four months of one more days until I felt comfortable and it was fine. And every other job that came after that, uh, including writing this book, has been full of fear. And you just take one more day and you do what you can for that day. And it tends to just dissipate over time. It's the, it's the doing, right? The the secret is just keep going, keep doing. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the amazing uh, network of White House social secretaries um, and how how important that was to you and also to Jeremy. And it's, and it's the reason for your relationship in the first place. And but how how do you? I think networks are incredibly important. But how do you transcend uh, political ideologies, especially at a time in which politics seems to be you know it really lacks civility? How do you? How do you create these groups that transcend politics? I think we all have to be mindful of the bigger picture in life. It's easy for all of the social secretaries to want to work together to make the White House always be the place it was, a place of tradition and charm and grace. And we don't care about the politics because we want people to have a certain kind of experience there. And I don't understand why more people can't relate this to whatever it is they do. For example, within Congress, there's such a desire in America for members of Congress to work together and find solutions. And yet, that seems to be so difficult. And if they look at the big, bigger picture and they see the value and the advantages of doing things together instead of being so acrimonious, I think they would find just a very different way of governing. And, you know, democracy was always meant to be based in cooperation and negotiation. And when it becomes very partisan, it becomes paralyzed. So um, 
it's not good for the way we govern our nation, and it's not good for our interactions with other people. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for reaching out to someone who you know has very different political views, but building that relationship? How do, how do you go about that? I think it it's always good to not be afraid to take the first step, to put your hand out there in friendship and choose something small and inoffensive and start to build on the edges until you can begin to build trust and reach a point where there is some area in which you both agree. It reminds me of a story a couple of years ago. I was seated at a dinner party between a very important senator and someone who was in the Obama White House at a very high level. And they refused to speak to each other or acknowledge each other. And I kept trying through the meal and I kept picking different subject matter that perhaps they would both be engaged in. And finally, by the end of the meal, I had hit on the television show Band of Brothers. And that got both of them going, and they were really illuminated by it. And then they started to talk to each other, and they sort of recognized that they were human beings, you know. And it's so easy because um, the partisan nature of Washington now makes it so that people don't socialize together from across the aisle the way they used to before. And so they really see these their opponents as one-dimensional, demonized enemies rather than people who have families and have maybe different backgrounds, but all in the end would like the world to be a better place and it's where you start finding those things around the edges that you can do together to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Arthur Brooks had an amazing op-ed a couple of weeks ago on this notion of othering, you know, how sort of painting people as the other, yes. painting them as the enemy, which was really a smart way and very consistent with what you're saying. So we talked a bit about the net, the importance of having a network of people that help you, that support you, that can give you that advice. Mentorship is a close, uh, you know, companion to this notion of creating that network. Did you have mentors, people that uh, really gave you great advice and support over your career? Honestly, my husband has been my best mentor because he's very good at knowing how to deal with other people and he's good at negotiating and things. I don't recall really having women mentors other than Mrs. Bush, who did take very good care of me and looked after how things were going and really wanted me to succeed. Uh, I found that a number of the young women who worked for me over the years have gone on to do great things, and I'm proud of them, and I'm happy to be their mentors, and I'm tickled when one of them says, you're my mentor, um, because I think it's great. It doesn't have to be a gender-to-gender -gender thing. But in the business that I was in, in event planning, I think there's something about having someone that you can call and say, oh my God, you're not going to believe this. The, the entertainer canceled and I don't have anybody and the event is in an hour and a half. What can I do? And just having, just knowing you have those people gives you confidence. Yeah, absolutely. So, Lee, before you became the White House Social Secretary, you had a very successful event business, so you've got a lot of experience in this area. Um, you also now have a wonderful blog and website called America's Table. Tell us a little bit about America's Table. You know, that is just a labor of love. It comes from the creative aspect of being a social secretary where you have calligraphers and you have wonderful chefs and pretty much anything you can dream up in the way of a party they can do and I kind of missed that when I left and so I continued to find recipes trying to find things that are healthier and sort of 
get Americans a little bit off of the way we eat traditionally and and going to a less meat-based diet. And I like writing about um, flowers and what's happening in trends in flowers. And it's all sort of creative party-related um, details that I still continue to um, be interested in. And so I just do it for fun. It's fantastic. Thank because you. we have you here. I want to take advantage of the fact that we can get some free advice (laughs) (laughs) to improve our own hostessing, if you will. I loved the story in the book uh, about the, I think it's the Secret Service at the White House would employ what's called the quote-unquote chicken walk. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Describe the chicken walk. I mean, most of us won't ever need the chicken walk. Most likely we (laughs) won't be throwing parties at that scale, but what is the chicken walk? Well, we used to have difficulty getting guests to leave the White House because obviously it's a often a a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and it's very exciting. Um, But there were regularly events, maybe two or three in the course of a day, and we needed to get people out because we were about to start another event. So the um, White House military social aides, who are volunteer officers stationed nearby, who come and work at all of the events and help us move people through lines and and just generally provide a a friendly presence and a uniform to tell people where to go and what to do, uh, would do this thing called the chicken walk where they would kind of point their toes out and they'd move really close to someone who was standing at a party talking and the person would you know have that subliminal feeling of someone invading their personal space and they'd move a little bit farther away and then they'd wait a minute and the social aid would move a little closer and in this way they would slowly move everyone out of a room and then they'd close the doors to the room and then we'd move on to the next room and we did that all the way through the state floor until we finally got people to leave the party. (laughs) I mean the book is filled with all sorts of amazing sort of tips and anecdotes in this regard. What about dealing with difficult people? Uh, Somebody who maybe has too much to drink or it could be any Mm -hmm. number of scenarios. Well you know you kind of have to divide it into different levels of difficulty. The easiest are people you're only ever going to see once. You know, you're standing in line at a football game and the person in front of you is just being impossibly difficult and can't quite get their order out. Or, you know, uh, someone who's a terrible driver, but you have to follow them for the next five miles. Those things are going to be over in a few minutes and your life will go on and they don't matter. So those are the easy ones to ignore. Um, There are people that you interact with off and on who need to be deflected or diffused. For example, it was common for people who had come to a dinner at the White House expecting to be seated at the president's table um, and then being disappointed because they weren't. And of course, the only 10 or 12 people can sit at the president's table. So people having that expectation would sometimes come to us and complain. And a, a woman came to Jeremy at one point and said, if you seated me any farther from the president, I'd be out of the White House. And he said, you know, there are no bad seats at the White House. Everybody's here. They're having a great time. You should relax and enjoy the dinner partners that you have with you. Or, you know, we'd say, I know you're not at the president's table, but, you know, it was specifically requested by the Secretary of Transportation that you sit at their table. And we don't get many requests like that. And, you know, then people's egos would be assuaged. And so there are always ways of getting around people in those lesser settings. The the real problem and the serious issue is when you're dealing with a horrible person, a really difficult, unpleasant person, and you can't avoid them. You know, they're a relative, or worst of all, they're your boss. Um, 
And I've been in situations like that in my career. And it's horrible, but you have to detach emotionally. You have to not allow them to goad you into ever fighting back or yelling. I mean, I remember early in my career being in a situation where there was a room full of staff and my boss was just screaming at me about everything that had gone wrong the day before at an event, none of which had anything to do with me, but for some reason I was the target. And I just stood there and I said nothing at all. And he kept screaming because he wanted me to respond and to scream back. And I just refused to engage, not because I was so clever, but because I honestly didn't know what else to do. Um, and I could see as I was standing there and he was going on and on, the looks on the faces of the rest of the staff. And at the end of that outburst, the people, the person who suffered the most was the boss because people all thought of him differently after that, you know, and, and they were all afraid of him and they, they felt like he was untrustworthy and they knew he was unfair. And um, the only thing I could do in that situation was stay in the job for the minimum time I had to and I left, but you know, we don't always have the option to leave or you know, you can't divorce yourself from an uncle you absolutely can't stand, but you can de decrease the amount of time you spend with them so that there's less of that in your life. That's great advice, great advice. <clears throat> Let's do a couple of easy ones. How about thank you notes? <laughs> when is email okay? I personally think email is fine to send a thank you note because Often if you wait to write it, you're not going to get around to it. And a nicely written thank you note, an email, is, you know, just as lovely. You just have to take the time to write it the way you would take the time to write any thank you note well. You never begin with, thank you for the lovely dinner. You, that is boring. You should think of something a little bit more charming and interesting like, what a great evening it was, or I've had the best time with you. Uh, and then write about something specific that you really noticed and appreciated that they did, maybe some small thing that you really liked, or um, you know, make it a little bit interesting and charming um, and make it look like you sincerely enjoyed the evening, whether you did or not. It's great advice. I mean, there's just, there's few things better than getting a lovely written note, whether it's an email or a handwritten right. note uh, that someone's taken the time and come up with something clever and interesting to say. Okay, another easy one. How about email invites or evites? Yay or nay? Oh, I think it's fine. I mean, I think that's just the wave of the future and, and how people are doing it now. Um, it's almost more, it's definitely more efficient because things get lost in the mail. People's addresses are sometimes wrong and you can be sending them things that they never get. And so as long as you've got the right email address, I think it's great. How about seating arrangements? I know Mrs. Bush had a very clear point, as did Mrs. Obama, at different points of view. Mrs. Bush uh, didn't like to seat spouses at the same table, certainly not next to each other or at the same table. And Mrs. Obama had, had a different uh, approach to that. What do you think? What's your approach to the best sort of way of putting your guests together to facilitate a great event? I personally prefer when husbands and wives are, are not seated together. And I say that because, you know, you sit across from your dinner, across from your husband or your wife at dinner almost every night of your life. So wouldn't it be interesting when you go to the White House to have the opportunity to sit with completely new people and maybe make some different friends? And it's not just at the White House, anywhere. And so I think it's friendlier. Um, 
But I do understand that there are many people, particularly in the Midwest, who feel very uncomfortable and they kind of want their spouse beside them. So I don't object when that happens. I mean, I enjoy talking to my husband, so I'm fine with it. But if you're at the White House and you've got 100 really interesting celebrities and people of achievement and merit, wouldn't you like to meet as many of them as possible and have the opportunity to talk to more than just one at dinner? Mm-hmm. How about <clears throat> you've raised two beautiful daughters who sort of follow in your footsteps as amazing hostesses. Um, what's your advice on imparting manners to our children? And of course, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always treated our kids um, like they were adults in the sense that the conversations at the dinner table were about current events and politics, and we expected them to participate. And um, we always gave them a number of things to make their own decisions about. One of the things that I see among some of my um, friends of my children is that they have difficulty making decisions. And if you start very young saying, you know, this is up to you and this is up to you, and, you know, it's smaller things, uh, they become more comfortable with the fact that they can make a decision. They have that ability and they have that confidence. Um, And I think that that, according to my daughters, because I did a lot of asking about this when we were writing the book, um, they both said that they thought that that was really useful and that it frustrates them when they're around their friends and no one can make a decision about where to go for dinner, even much less career things and things of real value. You mm-hmm. know. That's great advice. That's really great advice. Okay, one final question. We ask each guest to leave us with their favorite life hack, their favorite piece of advice or their favorite mantra. Um, you've got a lot of stuff in the book that's just amazing, but is there one life hack or piece of advice that really sticks out to you that is sort of your favorite? Uh, definitely my favorite is to not overreact to things and to always take a step back and allow yourself to think about the situation and how the other person might be feeling and give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, there are times when I encountered people who were so awful and so obnoxious. And then I would find out, you know, that perhaps they had a really ill child who they've been dealing with for years and the prognosis was not good. And it completely changes your attitude about it. And it makes you be less angry yourself at them. And then it makes you feel less guilty Mm -hmm. after the fact when you find these things out. There are often extenuating circumstances in life. And the ultimate hack of this is it's not about you. People, we all go through life thinking how we're treated is about us. It's usually not. People are in their own world. They're doing their own thing, and it's not intended to hurt your feelings or leave you out. They're just living their lives. Lee, this was fantastic. Thank you so, so very much. We really, really appreciate it. You can find out more about Lee via our website and our show notes at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. And you can also find Lee's terrific book that she's co-written with Jeremy Bernard on Amazon. Thanks again for listening. 